the storms of life are raging. Lord, stand by me when the current pulls me under. Lord, stand.
Hi everyone and, and welcome back to uh, another episode of our Catholics at Home podcast where we come to you every Saturday morning at 10.30 a.m. We bring you a, a variety of conversations from interesting ones, church-related, life-related, also, you know, what's happening in the country too. We have different conversations every Saturday morning and we'd like to welcome you uh, to this episode. And so if you are joining us for the very first time, uh, welcome to this small little online community that meets every Saturday morning uh, to be able to, to reflect, to share, and also to be able to, to grow in our faith. Now, for those of you who have been following us uh, now, today we are, I think, episode 72, almost 18 months since we started. Uh, you will always see me coming on later after uh, our hosts have introduced the show. Well, today I am I'm going solo, rather I'm, I'm flying solo. Well, the other hosts are, are not available. So I'm going to be your host. I'm going to be in this interesting conversation that we have this morning. Uh, and also to just help us to, to, to understand better our faith, our church, our spirituality, especially in a time like this when we are all still fighting this pandemic. As we talked about a week ago, we are still in the midst of a health crisis a political crisis, an economic crisis. But one thing we remember that, that God is with us. And, and that's the hope that we have, that we know that the light at the end of the tunnel is, is coming to us very soon. And so wherever you are tuning in from this morning, let's give thanks to God for this opportunity to, to be gathered together, to be able to have this conversation. Now, I must tell you on the onset that you know, this conversation is being recorded and it's not being broadcasted live, broadcasted live as we usually do on a Saturday morning, uh, simply because the guest that we have this morning uh, lives in New York and then there is a 12-hour difference. Uh, and if we were doing it live at 10.30 in the morning, on a Saturday morning, uh, it would be 10.30 p.m. for our guests at night and that's a bit late in the night to have a conversation. And so... This conversation is going to be pre-recorded and being broadcasted to you. Nevertheless, I'm sure it'll be an interesting conversation. And I'm sure you know who our guest is this morning uh, or today. Uh, it's for the James Martin, an author, a Jesuit priest who's written quite a bit. Uh, let's bring in uh, Father James uh, into this conversation. Hi, James. I think you are muted. So, all right. Okay, we got you in. I would say good morning. How are you? I'm very good. Good. And it's, it's morning for you now? Uh, it is. Uh, it is uh, about uh, almost 10 o'clock in the morning here in New York City. All right. James, thank you very much for, for taking time to, to be with us uh, on this, this podcast, this conversation. I know you have a very busy schedule. When you come up to the weekend, I, I know that you do your... Your, your, your Sunday reflections and, and many other things that you do uh, online and offline too. But thank you very much for, for taking time to be with us. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Well, just before we started, you, you had an interesting story about Malaysia. About, you know, though you had not been to Malaysia, but you were saying something about your dad having been in Malaysia. So you have some memory or at least you've heard the name Malaysia being mentioned oh. before in your, in your household. Absolutely. My, uh, my father worked for a pharmaceutical firm called Wyeth. Uh, which is still around. And uh, in the early, this would have been the early 60s, mid 60s, late 60s, early 70s, he was responsible for Southeast Asia um, 
and Japan. And uh, so he would travel to Malaysia and Kuala Lumpur a lot. He would travel to Indonesia, uh, Japan, and uh, really went all over the place. And so I, I knew all about Malaysia. We got coins from Malaysia and uh, dollar bills or rather, you know, currency from Malaysia. So absolutely. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm one of these days, I'll, I think I'll go to that part of the world and, you know, see what my, see <laughs> what my dad was writing home about. Now, remember, this is before, obviously way before email or even we could, you know, we couldn't call them. So these are postcards and letters. And so it was, it's fun to, to sort of uh, reconnect with that part of my life. Do you have any of those po postcards still from Malaysia? One day we should have a look at that. What, <laughs> what was it like? <laughs> I'm sure that my mom still has them. He would also go to uh, Pakistan uh oh. bangladesh really india he was all over the place and uh you know at the time uh he would go away for three or four months because you know in the 60s when you flew over there you couldn't just fly back and when you were over there he had to do all of his business so he would be away from our house for three or four months and we'd get these really interesting letters and postcards and it's kind of exciting well <laughs> letters and postcards are a little bit now you know out of fashion isn't it <laughs> yeah. we, we just as a, a text messages are, are the most uh, common things that we do today. James, just, you know, for a lot of people, uh, I know they, they read, you have written quite a bit, um, but at least for those who, who have not, at least not heard of you in this part of the world, which I'm sure there are few and far apart who have not heard about you, maybe a little bit about yourself. I mean, uh, where do you come from, James? I mean, originally. Sure. So I'm from Philadelphia, which is on the east coast of the United States. That's where my I you know grew up with my dad and my mom and my sister. Uh, I didn't have a particularly super religious upbringing. I went to uh, uh, public uh, uh, high schools and I went to the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. I studied finance. I worked for uh, six years with General Electric, uh, and then I entered the Jesuits in 1988. I won't tell you all of my training. Uh, part of it was overseas in East Africa with uh, working with refugees. And then in 1999, um, I was ordained a priest, a Jesuit priest. And I've been working uh, ever since at America Magazine, which is a Catholic magazine. And I write uh, mainly on uh, spirituality and religion. Uh, and I do a lot of work on social media. Um, and I'm also a, in 2017, the Holy Father appointed me as a consultor to the dicastery for communication uh, in the Vatican, which has been very interesting. So I'm really, um, yeah, so that's what I do. Mainly I, I write, that's that's my main apostolate. In addition to the other uh, priestly, more, you know, more sacramental things that I do, like, you know, celebrating mass and baptisms and funerals and weddings like every other priest. You say you write. Do you have do you have track of how many articles, how many books have you written? You know, it's funny. People ask me that, and I I, I think the number of books I'm looking on my shelf probably about fifteen or twenty. I'm not sure, and it's it's a little vague because some of them are edited books, so you okay. know I don't know if they really count. Articles, boy, I don't know. I've been doing it for twenty years, so probably a few hundred. <laughs> uh, I can't keep track. Uh, sometimes. You, you Sometimes Please. like a, a feast day will come up like a feast of, you know, today's uh, where we where we are is the feast of St. Bernard. And uh, someone will say, oh, you know, I really liked your article in St. Bernard. And I said, where did you see that? And it turns out it's from 15 years ago. I can't even remember. <laughs> That's right. You you mentioned, James, that, that in terms of education, you went to, to Wharton Business School. Now, that's a famous business school. Uh, you know, I guess you had your your career path all planned out well, you know, what, what made you choose this, this path now? Right. Well, we're speaking about vocation today. Uh, 
I was very much on that career path of being a person in business. And of course, as most many of the people who are watching know, uh, business is a real vocation for so many people. I mean, I, I would think a lot of people watching are in business in some way. Uh, and yet it didn't seem like it was for me. I studied business and enjoyed studying finance. But after four, five or six years at GE, I thought this isn't for me. But I really couldn't see a way out. I didn't really, no one had really asked me the kind of questions that we ask in the church, you know, which is, you know, what are you meant for? What does God intend for you? What is your vocation? You know, at Wharton, it was basically, you know, what can get you the, the best job, the, the most money, which, you know, people need to live and earn a living. Anyway, one night I came home and turned on the TV and saw a documentary about Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk. And it was so interesting that I went out and purchased his book, The Seven Story Mountain, which is really terrific. And uh, that was sufficiently interesting enough to uh, lead me to read the whole book. And that got me started about thinking uh, about the priesthood. And I ended up speaking to a local priest in our parish where I was at the time. And he said, well, you should talk to the diocesan vocation office. And then he said, by the way, or as an aside, he said, you might want to talk to the Jesuits because I was near a Jesuit university. And that's how that happened. So it was, uh, you know, it was Providence, of course. Uh, and then I met the Jesuits and really never looked back. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, in preparing for this conversation, uh, James, you know, uh, I, I mean, I've read some of your books, uh, but didn't know much about your life. Uh, but you, you seem to have had also a little role to play in, in a movie. How, how did that happen? I mean, was it before you, you joined the Jesuits or after? No, it was it's pretty funny. Uh, I guess you're talking about the Irishman, the Martin That's Scorsese. That's right. That's yeah. Martin Scorsese. So I had, uh, you know, a little closer to where you are. I had worked uh, with Martin Scorsese on a film called Silence uh, about uh, 17th century uh, Jesuit missionaries in Japan, which uh, was starred uh, Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver and Liam Neeson. It's quite good. It's based on a novel, I'm sure you know, by Shusako Endo. And I got to know Martin Scorsese, and his next film uh, was called The Irishman, which came out with Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci and a few other people. And he asked me, like he did on Silence, to be kind of a technical advisor, you know, more of a theological advisor. And, I, you know, I saw I was helping him with uh, different parts of the movie that had to do with the church, mainly um, uh, sacraments. So they had a baptism. They have a baptism, a wedding, and a funeral in the movie. And during the baptism, he said, would you like to be the priest? I said, sure. You know, I don't need a, I don't need too much encouragement to be in a Martin Scorsese <laughs> movie. That sounds like fun. And, and funny enough, I wasn't really nervous because, like you, Father, <laughs> I've done so many baptisms. It was like a regular baptism. I just, you know, they brought the kid over to me and it was a real child. It was in Latin, which I normally don't do baptisms in Latin. Uh, but I, you know, they, they all said, oh, you look very natural doing it. I said, well, I, I do baptisms all the time. Uh, so it was a lot of fun. And uh, my friends all laughed when they saw me on the screen. You know. So w w were you ever nominated for a Best Supporting Actor of some sort? Uh, sadly, no. I was, I was <laughs> overlooked. I was overlooked by the Academy. But funny enough, I get, uh, I get residual checks. I got, oh. um, yeah, which, you know, is, I take a vow of poverty, so I turn it into my community. But... I, I get I get checks, you know, from the from the movie, which is very funny. Uh, but when you also you, you also have a, a little role in, in Comedy Central here. So you, you're quite quite a different things that you have done. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I helped out on the Stephen Colbert show. 
I was on the old show, the Colbert show, and I've been on his late night show. Uh, you know, a part of it, Father, is it's just a function of being in New York City. Really, All there's right. so many, there's so many uh, entertainers and media types around, and I also work at a magazine, and so uh, you're you're close by, and so they're they're happy to kind of pull you in. And I always say. My rule is I always say yes, unless it's really something offensive, but because you can always make something better uh, in terms of the church. And if they're trying to portray the church in some way, even if it's not such a great movie or not such a great TV show, you can always make it less bad. That's right. And you can, we, you know, I, I help them by helping them understand how the church works. And, you know, we, I feel that the, the media helps the church if we can put a good face on the church and it's a great tool for evangelization. So I, I almost always say yes to these things. But I mean, talking about Comedy Central, I also know that, you know, you have a good sense of humor, isn't it? I mean, uh, in one of the early books that you wrote between heaven and mirth, you know, about, about humor uh, in, in, in the life of, of, you know, church men and women, of course, and spirituality too. And I think I think Pope Francis had mentioned something. You know, you know, we don't have enough uh, humor in, in consecrated men and women. You know, we need to be a bit more. And I remember remember reading this uh, this particular line in that book. I don't know if you remember. You've written so much. Uh, you know, sometimes it's good to laugh at oneself. And you talk about the story about you trying to learn Swahili. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> I, I I was in um, yeah many many stories about that. I was. I worked for two years with refugees in East Africa, and uh, it's kind of a funny story. I think the one I told in the book, uh, in, in Swahili, I'm not sure how many Swahili people you have watching, but um, there's Brother a- Brother Sid, uh, Brother Sid. <laughs> okay. There's, a, there's an expression. And so it was my very first day uh, learning Swahili. It was a kind of Im immersion, full immersion, where you just go into the classroom. It's one-on-one, -on -one and they just start speaking Swahili to you. And there's a very interesting, I would say, tradition in Kenya where when you're coming into a, a room, you knock on the door and you say Hodi, which basically means, I don't, I think it's an, exp I mean, I'm not sure what it means, but it's basically I'm here or let me in. And the response is Karibu, which means welcome or you're welcome. Okay. That's the same. You're welcome that you say if someone says, thank you. So this young man who was my teacher knocked on the door of the classroom and said, Hodi, you know, I had never, no idea what he was talking about. He said, Hodi again. He said, Hodi again. And then he motioned to me and said, Karibu. So I kind of understood that was the call and response. And he came in. I said, Karibu. And I thought that meant, because I had no context, I thought that meant, hello, how are you? Or <laughs> how are you? I'm fine. I thought it was a greeting. So when I went back home to the Jesuit community that day, I was walking along the street. And I said to everybody on the street, because you greet people, I'm not sure what it is like in Malaysia, but in Nairobi and in Kenya, you, you know, if you pass someone in the street, you say hello. And I kept saying Hodi, which means, you know, can I come in? And everyone started laughing at me and I, I didn't understand what was wrong. And so I finally got up to the to our uh, Jesuit community and I saw the receptionist who was Kenyan. And I said, Hodi, and she just burst out laughing. She said, you're already inside. <laughs> so I think it's I think you have to laugh at yourself because um you know, it, it, we can't take ourselves too seriously. And I'm sure you know, Father Clarence, that uh, in religious life and in the priesthood, you know, there are a lot of people that take themselves way too seriously. We take God seriously. We take the gospel seriously. But even Jesus had a sense of humor. I talk about that in the book. So we need to really, you know, as Chesterton, Chesterton said, uh, the angels can fly because they don't take themselves too seriously. 
Yeah, I, I think yeah, you know the kind of work that we do. Sometimes we need to laugh at ourselves and laugh at one another too. Especially when you live in a community, I think it's very important that you are able to, to 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 take this in and you know in in a light way. And I think you know that in the, in that book you you bring out a lot of different stories. And I remember you know the different things that, and sometimes yeah, it's yeah. And I'm sure you find that you know in the priesthood and in religious life, people people. I think because they look up to priests, you know, rightly or wrongly, uh, the priest can get kind of an inflated image of himself. And the priest can really become, um, I think, you know, a a little vain and a little uh, full of himself. Uh, There's a very funny story. I won't say who it is. It's a true story about a cardinal in the United States who was at a wedding. And I'm not sure uh, if it's the same in Malaysia, but uh, the culture here is that there's usually a head table. Mm-hmm. Right, a head table, yeah. and uh, uh, and you know that's where you know the 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 bride and the groom and the maybe the mother of the bride and the the groom's parents would sit. And uh, there was a cardinal. This is a true story. There was a cardinal at a wedding, and he was mistakenly seated at at the table number two or three. And the bride came up to him and said, <laughs> "Your Eminence, I'm so sorry. You were supposed to be seated at the head table." And he said, wherever I am seated is the head table. (laughs) (laughs) And he wasn't being, he wasn't being funny. He was serious. And I just thought, this is a guy that really needs to laugh at himself a little bit. (laughs) Uh, That's right. That's right. Um, James, I mean, just coming into, I mean, the situation in Malaysia currently, we are still in a lockdown. And and I know US, in the US, you have gone through the lockdown and you're kind of out of the lockdown at at this time. Um, I I recall, Call at least, or at least seeing uh, a, an article that you wrote in, in the New York Times about where is God in this in this pandemic, uh, in this crisis. Uh, just want to kind of reflect with you also to help our our listeners here. You know, people keep asking the same question. You know, uh, where is God? You know, uh, in this pandemic. I just want to kind of relate it to a little bit about something that you wrote some years ago about your reflections on Ground Zero. Mm. Uh, you know. Are people asking, do you see some similarities in the questions that people are asking? And, and you know, what are your thoughts, you know, after one year of this kind of lockdown? Um, what are your reflections on where, where is God in all of this? That's a great question. And, you know, I've never been asked that question about pairing the two events. And I think they're very similar uh, in that uh, both events would seem like completely uh, negative, right? Completely bad. Obviously, you know, at Ground Zero, we had uh, 3,000 people lose their lives. And, uh, you know, it was just a terrible, evil attack from terrorists, right? But when I was there, uh, I was working at Ground Zero um, uh, in the days and weeks afterwards. And I, I saw a great deal of the Holy Spirit because I saw people who were being very generous, the rescue workers, of course, who had given their lives, right? There was that witness, right? Greater life has no man than the one who lays down his life for his friends. So there's that witness, but also people who were, had come from all over the country, all over the world to help. So there's this great sense of resurrection uh, in a sense. And I I found God there in the pandemic, uh, you know, also a a different kind of evil, right? There's a kind of moral evil uh, of the world trade center uh, and a, and a natural evil, right? I mean, you know, what, why do these, why do these natural, uh, disasters in a sense, which is what the pandemic has happened. But in any event, I think we can see God. I would have, I would write that article differently today. I would say that we can see God uh, in the selflessness uh, of um, hospital workers, for example, particularly at the beginning. Uh, and I'm sure in Malaysia, you had people going in not knowing 
you know, doctors and nurses and healthcare workers not knowing how infectious it was and not knowing how to treat these things and real selflessness. And, and I, I would say also, Father, that um, God offers us two kinds of parables, right? A parable helps us understand how God is. In 9-11, I think the parable was uh, God is like the firefighter who runs into the burning building to save you, right? There's this kind of great love. And I would say at, uh, with the pandemic, um, you know, God is like the doctor or the nurse that comes into your room to try to help you, even though, uh, you know, he or she is not sure that, you know, they will be infected. So I think we see a great deal of love. Uh, and we've seen a lot of community too. I, I also think, you know, what the Pope said is so appropriate, uh, which is that we hope that we won't come out of this just going back to normal, right? We hope that we will see, uh, you know, our relationships differently. Uh, what do you, what do you think, father, when you look at the pandemic, if someone said to you, where, where would God be in the midst of this? What would you say? It's a very tough question for that. I, I think sometimes I, I, I also think that at least I, I share this having to console families who have, who have lost a loved one. Uh, those are the things I struggle with, uh, you know, words sometimes don't make sense to them. Uh, I, I would admit that sometimes there's always this, co this constant battle with God too. You know, why, why must this happen to someone uh, in like this? You know, I had some friends who, who, who lost a sibling mm. or, or a parent, but God is God is present, but I think for us at this time, it's still He's still not very visible for people, mm -hmm. especially who had really gone through some kind of a traumatic experience mm -hmm. uh, and still fighting with God. I mean, the questions that I'm asked, you know, you know, why is God punishing punishing me? Uh, you know, I, 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 and that comes from somebody who is who's been in church, like a pillar of, of a church. <laughs> you know, well, uh, it's it, it and it's a, the best. Yeah, it's a natural question. And I think, uh, as you say, uh, you know, easy answers really don't help people. Yeah. Right. I mean, there are a lot. Of, I, I have a book called Learning to Pray that just came out and I talk yeah. about uh, unanswered prayers. And I think the, the the sort of stereotypical easy answers like God is testing you or God, which makes God seem to be a monster almost. I think the only real real answer as the answer that you gave which is that we don't know right that we're it is a mystery right that this is a mystery and um and yet god is present to us so the, the why i think is is really a mystery but that we do see signs of god's presence and also i like to remind people without taking away their suffering that you know jesus would have lived in a time of pandemic too and i mean you know jesus would have lived in a time when there wasn't modern medicine uh, and he's with us and he has suffered with us and he would have seen his friends get sick and who knows even saint joseph may have died from some sort of illness like this and so he's with us in our suffering but i think you're right i think i think there is no sort of satisfactory or sufficient yeah. answer to the question of why is there suffering yeah I mean, you you also been kind of posting a little bit about what's happening in Haiti, and I guess oh, yeah. it's also a situation where people are asking the same question. So it's all around the world. It's either a, a pandemic or some other kind of a you know natural disaster that takes place, and it's a qu constant question that that people keep asking. Uh, I mean, coming from a Jesuit tradition, what does Saint Ignatius say uh, when dealing with suffering and pain? Well, Saint Ignatius, I think, would encourage us to. Um, place ourselves in the presence of God, and especially uh, using our imaginations in an imaginative way, uh, and place ourselves with Jesus, uh, and ask to 
be led into a sort of conversation with Jesus in our prayer. Uh, I, I encourage people to, to talk to the Jesus who would have seen suffering, right? And, and also to talk to Jesus on the cross, because it is a kind of crucifixion for, uh, for the world, really. You know, interestingly, um, Father, you were talking about the, I think that the, the, the sort of co comparison and the contrast between 9-11 and the pandemic is really a rich one. Because I think you have, on the one hand, you have a moral evil, right? I'm not a moral theologian, but you have, you know, that was the result of people's choices. I mean, people's evil choices, right? The terrorists driving the planes mm -hmm. into the World Trade Center. Where the other is a natural evil, right? Um, illness, disease, cancer, uh, a hurricane, uh, earthquakes. And, and I would say that I think actually the moral evil is easier for people to grasp because they say, all right, well, people made these bad decisions. I think the hard thing for people is the natural evil, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, particularly kids getting sick and kids getting cancer and and the pandemic. And it's very difficult to come up with um, satisfactory answers. But again, I think that the invitation really I've been saying to people uh, is to still believe and trust in a God that we might not understand. Right. That we still trust in this God. It's still about the relationship, even though we don't understand God's ways, which, you know, which is something that's all over the Bible, the Old Testament, and the New Testament. Yeah. The other thing about in, during this pandemic, even we talk about the church uh, and one of the realities that we are dealing with here is, you know, you have an, an on-site church and now you have an online church and, and ministry has, has changed. Even for us as priests, uh, the ministry has, I mean, we had to kind of reinvent ourselves. Even this podcast is something that we kind of invented because we had to go online completely. Um, and you being a consultant uh, in the, the dicastery for communications, how do you see post-pandemic? Do, do you see you know this ministry, online ministry, growing? Or would we go back to that on-site kind of ministry? I think that's a good question. I'm not sure, but I'd be curious about your answers as well. I think it's going to be a both end. I think that people do really want to go back to church. I, uh, the first time I went back, I, I celebrate mass every day in my Jesuit community with my community. So I was very lucky. Uh, but the first time I went back to a public mass, I live right next door to a church. It was, I just, I felt like it was a totally different experience than it was. Uh, by the same token, I think that there are some things, for example, like this podcast and, uh, you know, like educational things that I, I don't think are going to go away. Um, I think people are more, you know, comfortable doing things online. So I think it will probably be some sort of hybrid, but I don't know. Um, I do think, I, I don't know if this is controversial or not. I, I do think that, that the online masses, streaming masses, I think eventually people, they just want to get back to the pews and they want to sing. Uh, I tell you, the first time I heard an organ in church, I thought, oh my gosh, <laughs> I've really <laughs> been missing this. Uh, so I think I think there are some things that we can learn and we can keep, but I do think uh, there's no substitute for in person. What do you, what do you think? Do you think that this online ministry will continue in the church? I, I would think, like you said, a hybrid a hybrid model. Uh, a, a lot of people are getting comfortable also, and I think one of the questions that is in the, in the minds of church leaders is that would people come back? Would people yeah. come back? Uh, we, we, we don't know. Some, some research or some surveys show that, you know, people will come back. More people will come back. I think there was a survey done in the UK and they saw more people returning after the pandemic uh, to church. Maybe a greater 
reliance on God for you mean more crisis. more than before more than before the more pandemic? than before oh. yeah yeah we'll see before. that's like at 9-11 there was a big spike people went back oh, to really and, and then it went back down <laughs> I tell you here's yeah. a funny thing that I've heard from a number of people uh without saying where this is uh, but but in the United States uh many people as you know uh are not uh, in a sense, restricted to the parishes they will go to online, right? And so let's say yeah. most people go to their local parish. But people online, they've been, uh, you know, sampling everywhere. Many everywhere, many parishes. And I know people, which is, I, I think will be kind of a challenge. I know people who have said, gee, the preaching at this online parish is so much better than my local parish, or the music <laughs> is so much better, or the liturgy is better. Why can't my parish be like this? So I think... I think the challenge is going to be that also people have gotten used to a certain, you know, level of uh, liturgy. And if they don't find it in their local parish, I think that's that's kind of a challenge. It may be a good challenge for the parishes to um, to kind of compare with one another. But I, I've heard that as well. You know, I, I like my online mass of this parish, you know, thousands of miles away than I, I do my uh, my local parish. So it's kind of a challenge. Well, I, I would I would assume you and I come from a similar generation, uh, but with, with with the millennials who are so tech savvy and you know and who are so you know born in, in this into this digital world, do you think that that there's something that they would embrace more openly, uh, uh, a kind of an online ministry? That's a great question. That's a really good question. I think they're more comfortable with it and they're more uh, adept at it. I do think, though, a big uh, word in for millennials and Gen Z is the word community, and they are looking for uh, you know a real community. And I think that even uh, you know I, I was going to say kids, but even young people that age, you know, are looking for one-on-one -on -one in person relationships. But I think you're right. I think that the the bar is a lot lower, and they're a lot more comfortable doing things online. Um, so it's it's I think one of the benefits for a lot of people has been especially for the elderly um, who can't you know go to church. I think that's been a real blessing. So a lot of elderly people who physically were not able to go to church even before the pandemic, now they have a place that they can go. I know my mother, for example, uh, who lives in Philadelphia, she watches Cardinal Dolan's Mass um, at uh, the Cathedral of St. Patrick's in New York City every Sunday and loves Cardinal Dolan now. And she obviously wouldn't be able to travel to New York every Sunday. So it's been a big blessing for her. Yeah, now, are you doing Masses online, Father, yourself? Personally, uh, I was doing in the first lockdown, but currently, no. In the mm -hmm. first lockdown, because it was a strict lockdown, so we kind of took turns to, to do the online masses. Mm -hmm. But now, we are kind of designated some parishes to do online masses uh, for the archdiocese. Are you all back to church? I mean, are people back to church uh, in New York? Yes. Uh, I would say uh, probably about four or five months ago, when the vaccines started to come here, I, I have a bad sense of time, but... I would say maybe March and April, the vaccine started to come. Uh, and as I said, I live right next door to a parish. Uh, and you, you, we are back in church, but everyone usually is wearing a mask. Okay. Uh, and that's never changed. And that's been fine. Um, it's, 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 it almost changes day by day. This Delta variant has made people more worried. But I would say, you know, my neighborhood, I live in on the Upper West Side in Manhattan. And believe it or not, Believe it or not, my neighborhood is 97% vaccinated. And wow. so, you know, one feels pretty safe here. Uh, one of the reasons I think is that uh, we were particularly hard hit at the beginning. 
Uh, I live right. I, I can see through my window. I'm not going to turn the camera, but through my window, I can see a hospital where people were being taken. So, yeah, I think that's a very um, strong motivation for people to get vaccinated. Uh, but we're we're back, and there are even choirs um, where they they with masks. Uh, it's uh, you know so yeah, but but in, in in Kuala Lumpur, you said that there's it's kind of a mix. Some some churches are back, and some are not. No, but I mean, not everyone is back. I mean, it's mm. just. Uh, we are live streaming masses from some parishes and those who are involved in the live streaming, they get to go, mm. uh, but not the general population, the mm. general public still not able to go to mass. Mm. Uh, we haven't reached that level of, 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 of immunity yet in the community. Mm -hmm. uh, so hopefully soon, we're hoping that by this Christmas, we, we get to go to mass I hope so. uh, for most people. Mm. Father James, I, I want to come to, to something, you know, that is, was all over the media, uh, you meeting the Holy Father. Uh, <laughs> I think it was in June, somewhere in June, uh, you had met the Holy Father, uh, Pope Francis. Uh, the work that you do uh, online, of course, you, you have received quite a bit of, of flag from a lot of people, uh, but you met the Holy Father uh, and, uh, and there's a letter also that he, he writes uh, which I will ask you a little bit in, in a short while. Sure. Uh, have you met him before? I mean, prior to this as a Jesuit, no. you know, this is the first time. No, what, what happened was it was actually, uh, it was, it was two years ago uh, in 2019. Uh, I was over there for one of these meetings for the Dicastery for Communication. And I, I just have to say, because I am not a Jesuit provincial, meaning a regional superior or a, college president or anything special like that. And I don't have any special office in the Jesuits. I'm not in Rome much. Uh, but when I was uh, invited to participate in this dicastery, there was a, there was a big meeting uh, of, for the whole dicastery. So I went over, I stayed at the Jesuit Curia and a friend of mine, um, who's a friend of the Pope, a close friend of the Pope said, would you like to meet the Pope? And I said, of course, I said, as long as he would want to meet me, and I won't tell you the whole story, but uh, he, I was in this audience with him and someone and they said, he wants to meet you. And I went up and I introduced myself in Spanish. I said, I'm James Martin. And he said, oh, I'd like to have an audience with you. And uh, I went to the, his assistant who was standing right next to him and they said, what's your phone number? And I thought, oh boy, this is never gonna happen. But sure enough, two, <laughs> days, two days later, an invitation arrives at the, uh, the Jesuit Curia. I, I have to say, that was probably one of the most exciting days of my life. Uh, and then sure enough, that next Monday was September 30th, 2019. Um, I met with him uh, for a half an hour. I, I really do think it was one of the highlights of my entire life. And uh, he asked me not to divulge too much of what we talked about, but I can say we talked about uh, my ministry with LGBTQ Catholics. Uh, and it was just, it was just fantastic. And then uh, in, in June of this year, um, so I've gotten to be, um, I'll say in touch with him and, uh, I was running an online conference for LGBTQ Catholics and those who minister with them. And I want to say for our audience, this is not challenging in any church teaching. It's just sort of outreach. And I said to him, um, you know, if you'd like to send a greeting and he sent me this beautiful note, handwritten note. And I checked with a couple people who said that, you know, he's, he's leaving it up to you if you want to share it. And it was a beautiful note about God. Uh, God's way of love is with closeness, compassion, and tenderness. He said he prays for my flock, meaning the LGBTQ yeah, I think, community. I think, I think we, we have a visual. We have a visual of, okay. of, of, that, of that letter, uh, that handwritten letter. Yeah, it was. There it is. Yeah, the so, yeah. 
It's he in writes Spanish. You, he writes to you in Spanish. It's in Spanish, and uh, I write to him in Spanish. <laughs> I have to have it translated. I'll move over here. <laughs> I won't translate the whole thing, but uh, you know, there you go. Uh, That's right. The the beautiful thing I love is in the second paragraph. He he praises my own ministry, which was lovely. But then he talks about. I'll read it. Our heavenly Father comes close close with love to each one of His children, each and every one. His heart is open to each and every one. He is a father. God's style, I love this, has three elements, closeness, compassion, and tenderness. This is how he comes closer to each one of us. And then he talks a little bit about my ministry. And then in the, the next paragraph, I pray for your faithful, <laughs> your flock, and all those whom the Lord places in your care so that you protect them, make them grow in the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and, you know, I have to say, you know, I do get a lot of flack, but in that paragraph before that, he says, I pray for you to continue in this way. And I, one of the things I say to people who uh, might have problems with some of my ministry is that, you know, I, I've been asked by the Pope to continue and he's my superior and that's what I'm going to do. But it was a, it was a great note and it wasn't just for me, it was for uh, all LGBTQ people. Uh, and it was, it was really exciting. And that, that's- And here is- uh, That's, that's so you, 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 ha you have this as on, on your Facebook uh, I do. picture. It, I do. It, it, must, it must have been a very significant moment for you to meet him face to face oh, like this. I, I, I honestly, honestly, Father Clarence, I, I couldn't believe I was in there. I, I really, I couldn't believe it. And yet I have to tell you, look, I, I want to make these things clear because sometimes people have strange ideas about Jesuits. That's the first time I've ever, I, I met him. I shook his hand once or twice, but that's the first time I've ever had a conversation with the Pope. And a, a couple of things, he was very warm and open and, and very attentive, um, funny, laughing, you know, sometimes when you see him at masses, he looks very serious. That's his sort of uh, mass face, right? Very serious. But in person, he's very open, very warm. Um, and I will say um, that I was completely relaxed when I was with him, which was surprising. And I'll, I'll tell you a couple of reasons why. I, first of all, I just went in to kind of be the voice of LGBTQ people. I wasn't, I wasn't there to convince him of anything, right? So there wasn't, you know, I, I didn't feel pressure in that sense. Uh, I, I knew that I, I was there to just be these people's voices. But also, he's very warm. It just felt like being with a brother Jesuit, uh, and I felt what totally. Was the, what right. was the room? What was the room? Was it his library? That, that's his. That's the. That's the library in the Apostolic Palace, and All right. uh, you know that's where he meets. I was really honored. That's where he meets diplomats and presidents. And um, one of the ways that the Vatican works also is, uh, you know, where you meet with them, whether or not you're on his schedule, whether or not they send out a picture. That's a sign of, you know, in a sense, his approval, and. Uh, I, I just, I can't say enough about it. I, I felt, I, I haven't shared this with too many people, but uh, you know the expression, uh, walking on air, you know that expression? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, when you're happy, you're walking on air. That's right. I, I, I truly, I haven't shared this with too many people. I actually felt when I was leaving the office that I was lighter. I actually felt like, I thought, oh my gosh, this is probably what that means. I felt lighter and uplifted and, and really inspired. Uh, can, can I tell you another funny story? Um, sure. uh, you can see in that picture um, of the two of us meeting, uh, the picture of the two of us meeting, I'm reaching into my pocket and you can see that right there. I, I didn't realize that when you have these formal pictures taken, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be still. They're like formal pictures, but I'm reaching in my pocket. I'm pulling out a letter from my nephew who uh, was going to take the name Francis. Uh sure. And he's writing, he's, he wrote to the Pope in, in Spanish and said um, he, he'd like to take the name Francis for confirmation. 
And the Pope uh, said, would you like me to write him a letter back? And he did on the spot. And uh, I guess um, two months ago, my nephew finally had his confirmation, which was delayed for two years because of COVID. And he took the name Francis and he wore socks with the picture of Pope Francis on it. And I sent him a picture. And so the first part of the letter um, from, right. from Pope Francis. I was, said, I, was, I was wondering what the reference was to the socks. Yeah. So, so if, so you see, if, you, if you look at that letter, uh, the first part of the letter uh, says, I, I want to thank you for the picture of your nephew. That's right. Uh, and congratulate him. There you go. Uh, please thank your nephew for his kindness to me and for having chosen the name Francisco and congratulate him on the socks. <laughs> that made me laugh. Uh, tell him I pray for him and please ask him to do so for me. So he wore socks with a picture of Pope Francis on them for his confirmation. Wow. So so here, here's the point. We, you, you were saying this earlier, uh, Father, to have a sense of humor. I mean, you know, Pope Francis said that seeing my nephew with, with socks with his photo on it uh, made him laugh. And I think that's great to, to actually have that in the same letter where he's talking about, you know, ministering to LGBTQ people. It's just, it just shows you that that's part of his who he is, you know, and that's part of who we are. No, you, you you always think when you when you write letters to to celebrities and famous people, it's it's their their PA, their personal assistant who will pick up those letters and 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 not pass it on. It's interesting that he actually picks it up, he reads it, and and he he replies, making reference to it uh, in his busy schedule. I, I wonder how he really does it. It's I don't know how he does it either. And uh, one of the things that I thought was after my nephew, it really is. It's a very funny picture. Um, I might be able to, I might be able to find it for you while we're talking. I don't want to take up too much time, but, uh, when I got the picture of my nephew, um, you know, I, I took it myself when he was uh, being confirmed. Uh, I, I laughed so hard and I remember thinking I should really, oh, here it is. Here's the picture. <laughs> it's very funny. I'm sure you can see it. See it. See him. All right. Okay. And there he is with the socks. socks. You see the socks. Yes. With Pope Francis. And I said to myself, I have to send this to the Pope. And, you know, <laughs> you know, Father Clarence, I thought he has such a busy life. That's He's right. He's probably so stressed. I think this will make him laugh. And, and I wanted to send it just because I knew it would make him laugh. And I told him that story uh, a couple of years ago. So and it did. So I was happy I sent it. And uh, I think we all need a laugh. And I think he needed a break, you know, from a lot of the stress in, the, in his job. And you're right. I don't know how he responds to all of the letters. I don't amazing. know how he does it. It's amazing. It is. You're talking, we're talking about receiving flag, uh, Father James, you know, and, and you receive a lot for what you do in ministry mm -hmm. that you do. You know, I, I just trying to, as a priest, fellow priest, I'm trying to understand how, how do you cope with this? You know, do you, do you, do you bring this to the Lord in prayer? Uh, uh, and, you know, Sometimes it can be very, very energy draining. Uh, do you feel like that? Yeah. Well, I'll, 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 we're going to shift gears a little bit because it's going to get a little more serious. Uh, yeah. So for people who don't know, I work with the LGBTQ community, and I really am attacked pretty much daily um, online. And uh, and so it. So basically, Father, um, about five or six years ago on retreat, my annual retreat, I'm going in a couple days in this to the same place. I was praying with the story of the rejection at Nazareth. And for those of you who don't know, the rejection at Nazareth is when Jesus stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth and essentially proclaims that he's the Messiah, more or less. And the people initially like him, but then they turn on him. And then we Catholics tend to downplay this, but they drive him to the brow of a hill and they try to kill him. 
So they try to throw him off a hill. The people in Nazareth try to throw Jesus off a hill and kill him. And in my prayer, Ignatius asks us to imagine ourselves in, in prayer with, you know, in these gospel scenes. I remember saying to Jesus, well, you know, you knew all these people in your town, right? I mean, we know Nazareth was 200 to 400 people. It's very small. It's a small town. How were you able to do this? Like, how were you able to stand up and do this knowing that people would probably reject you? And the words I heard in prayer, and I don't mean actually heard them, but they mm -hmm. came to me, was Jesus saying to me, must everyone like you? And it was quite shocking, Father. I, I didn't expect something like that. It seemed very mysterious. But I realized that Jesus was free of the need to be loved, liked, or approved of. Right? He didn't need people's approval in Nazareth for him to do his job. And early on, even his family, we know in Mark 3.21, his family comes to Capernaum to restrain or arrest him. They don't understand him at that point. And he doesn't need that. And I felt it was an invitation for, for me to let go of that need for everyone to like me. So that's the first thing. Uh, and when the attacks came, I went back to that, that invitation to freedom, right? And look, you have a beautiful picture of Jesus behind you in that icon. Uh, people did this to Jesus, so why would we expect them to do any different to us, right? Uh, he, he says that in the Gospels. But eventually, I, I also realized that I had the, I can say this now publicly because of that letter, you know, I have the, the support of the Pope, who you saw said, continue with this work. I have the support of my Jesuit superiors, and so I feel comfortable in it. And I also know that I'm not challenging any church teaching. I'm basically just asking people to listen to LGBTQ people and, and love them and treat them as the Pope said. It's so beautiful with compassion, closeness, and tenderness, right? So uh, gradually, believe it or not, the, the, the attacks stopped really bothering me. And also, we have to say that, you know, some of these things online— I mean, if, if it's some anonymous Twitter account with, you know, two followers and it's anonymous <laughs> and it's been clearly set up just to attack me, I, why would I take that seriously? So it, it can be difficult at times, especially if it comes if it comes out of the blue. Uh, but I, I for the most part, I just I don't really I try not to pay too much attention to it. And I think of that that phrase that from my retreat, must everyone like you? Not everyone's going to like me. And I always say as a joke to people. They didn't like Jesus. A lot of people didn't like Jesus. And, you know, he was a pretty nice guy, right? So why would we expect any different? You, you talk about, about taking things to prayer. And, mm. and in your most recent book about learning to pray, there's one thing that kind of caught my attention. You talk about prayer as God's desire to be in a relationship with us. Uh, very often we think of prayer as, I want to be in a relationship with God. Mm. Uh, we don't see, you know, would you like to explain that a little bit further? I mean, of course. Yeah. So, so we, we all, I think everyone kind of on this podcast, certainly that the, the podcast, you know, the, the subject is finding God in all things. We all, if we, if we sort of look carefully enough, have a desire to encounter God. Now, what does that mean? You, you might have a longing to, to, to for more in your life. You know, is, is that all there is? Is there's a sort of, as St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So we have a desire or we have a desire for a more spiritual life, a more prayerful life. We're desire to know God more, desire to encounter God more in prayer. And I always ask people, where do you think that desire comes from? Some people say, well, I'm, I'm just curious or I'm worried or I, you know, I see someone who has a, seems to have a more spiritual life and they seem more calm. But you have to say that that desire that is, is really coming from God because that's the way that God would that's the way that God draws you. How else would God draw you 
other than by planting within you the desire for God, right? So I saw a plaque in a retreat house in New Jersey a couple of years ago, which I love, which was that which you seek is seeking you. And the beginning of the spiritual life, I think, is for people to recognize that the desire that they have for God is really God's desire for them. This is the way God, how else would God call us? This is the way God calls us. And so it can be very profound for people to recognize that because then it becomes less of a, I am just curious, right? You know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm just curious versus God is calling me. It, it, it demands a, a yes. So I found that really helpful in the spiritual life. Uh, God's desire for us. God's, God's, that's, 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 that's the theme of the, the whole Old Testament. The whole Old Testament is God's desire for people of Israel. And then obviously God desires us so much and, and wants to be with us so much. He becomes one of us. Right. It's just, it's just extraordinary. And then, then the Holy spirit. And it's just, it's just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful insight that I continually go back to. You know, you also talk in, in, in your book about the Jesuits guide to, to everything, almost, you know, a, a spirituality of everything, you know, for a lot of people, at least to our listeners you know, who at this time, when we are far away from, from church, we are far away from, I mean, far in the sense we're not, it, it, it's not accessible at this time to the sacraments, you know, what would you say, how, how would people pray during this time? You know, would you have some simple tips, you know, what, what can you do from home? You know, you say learning to pray. Well, I, uh, I mean, my, my joke would be, uh, you know, you can buy the book and find out all the different <laughs> ways of prayer. But uh, seriously, uh, there are so many different methods and techniques of prayer. Um, there's the, the technique I've been sort of alluding to throughout this podcast, which is Ignatian contemplation, where you imagine yourself in a scripture scene, which can be very helpful for people and just to see what comes up. And by what comes up, I mean things like emotions, memories, feelings, desires, insights, uh, words and phrases, all the kinds of things that come up in our, our prayer experience or can come up. That doesn't mean they always come up in our prayer. Um, I think one of the most helpful ways during the pandemic uh, is, a, is a prayer called the Examination of Conscience, which is a very popular Jesuit prayer, which is essentially, I won't go through the whole thing, but it's essentially a review of the day. You sit down for 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes at the end of the day, and you review where you feel God has been. And why do you need to do that? Well, because in the middle of a pandemic, particularly when things really can seem bleak, uh, to be able to see where God has been active, you know, in a phone call from a friend, a text, a podcast that you might have seen uh, on YouTube, right? Like like this one, um, something you, you read in a book, uh, you know, a doctor helps you, a pharmacist helps you. You go out and you see the sunshine, you're working in your garden. To be able to sort of look back and see those moments really helps put things in perspective. And it does help you find God in all things. Again, coming back to that Ignatian phrase, because, you know, as we know, when we are very upset, it's, we tend to go to the negative, you mm -hmm. know. But I would say, what, what do you think, Father? What have you, when I'm sure people have asked you, um, what, what you know, one of, of the things that, yeah, I mean, <laughs> one of the things that sometimes I too forget, recently I was reminded, you know, I was just kind of like, you know, this whole thing is kind of after a while, after 18 months of sitting in, 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 in kind of a lockdown, it, it gets to you, even, even to the best of anyone. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I was just saying, oh my God, I, I really can't wait. And then this person just told me this, Father, don't forget gratitude, you know, for what you have. And I think that's, that's a, a, it's a very good reminder to me, in fact, you know, to say that, yeah, there's so many things that, you know, that 
that are not going right. But don't forget, there are many things that are going right too. That's and like right. you said, I mean, you you look out the window, you see sunshine, or you look other people, you look at other things. Um, so that's what I I've been telling people recently uh, after being reminded. I think it was God's way of telling me too. You know, don't forget to be grateful for for the things that that you get. Uh, gratitude. So so that's that's been my prayer. You know, in, mm. in this last couple of months, uh, you know, trying to put out as you said, there's a lot of negative energy that sometimes drains you and. Just to look at it, you know, what there's so many things to be thankful for God. Yeah, God. and I I also think that for me, I'll, I'll tell you something that I've kind of boiled it all down, uh, because people, you know, you're saying, Father, that you know, it can be, uh, it can be stressful, and we can say, I, I can't deal with it anymore, or this is never going to change, or or I can't, I I can't, I can't, I can't. And I always tell people that the shorthand way for discernment is that despair and panic are never coming from God. Uh, hope and courage always are. And so if you feel within yourself this this voice, in a sense, not physical voices, but this kind of impulse towards despair, to not listen to it. But if there, if there are impulses towards hope and, yes, I can get through this, yes, I have resources, yes, I'm able to get through this, that's coming from God. Because this is, this is Jesus' message in the Gospels always. How many times does he say, fear not? Uh, and so, so that's a nice way to discern. And I, I found that helpful for people in the last 18 months. Yeah. As we, as we come out slowly, I mean, you, you have, I think you are few, a lot of steps ahead of us in terms of going back to church and being accessible, sacraments being accessible to many people. Uh, I think as we come out of this pandemic, I was just going to ask you, are there things that the church has to learn from this experience as we as we move out, you know, and, and what would you say things like, you know, what would be like some of the priorities that we that we need to put in place um, that we should have and must have learned from this pandemic for us to move forward? Wow, that's such a good question. I'd be I'd be curious about your answers to that. Too. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think that the the primary thing may be how much people have suffered and how much people need uh, consolation and how much people need the church to be, you know, in a sense, you know, the church, Pope Francis's image is the church as the field hospital. And I know oftentimes without getting into, you know, you know anything sort of controversial, that the church can sometimes focus on what we call hot button issues, right? These real hot button topics. And I think most people right now just need to be comforted. And just need to have the church as their home. Welcome back. And, you know, de depends on where this is. But, you know, sometimes the church doesn't do that very well. Right? I mean, sometimes what people hear from church leaders is mostly condemnations and, uh, you know, documents uh, versus when they really need to just be comforted. And, you know, people have lost their jobs and have lost loved ones, as you were saying. So I would hope that the, that the church could be a, a consoler, really, and that, that, that the church would see that as its primary mission in the next few years, really, because we're going to, it's going to be taking a while to get over this. What would you say? I mean, I'm, a, I'm, I always, mean, loath, I, I'm always loath to say what the church should do, but what would you yeah. say, Father? No, I agree totally with you. I think as, as we come out of this, um, people are, are, are broken, I mean, in mm -hmm. terms of their relationship with God, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of relationship within the families. I mean, we also hear of, you know, within problems in families, uh, 
broken marriages because of you know having to live in the same house and you know yes. and you really having to confront each other with so many different issues uh, you said having lost a loved one and i totally agree with you i think i, I like the word you use the church as a consoler mm-hmm. uh, yeah as you know to be able to be to be with people my fear my fear is that is that we would go we want we want to go back to the pre-pandemic days as quickly as possible and we would not have learned anything through the pandemic then because we want to we want things to happen as how it was before maybe because we are used to that model we are we, we are used to how things are done that particular way okay you do mass is celebrated this way and you do this thing this way and you don't change but perhaps i think for all of us i think it's it's the time to kind of relook and and prioritize our ministry i agree i mean well, if you think of someone imagine someone having gone through a terrible health crisis and then having buried a loved one and you see that person at work or in the street for the ne- on the next day or the next week you would never just pretend that everything was fine you would really spend some time with that person and also give that person some time but again i think that you know oftentimes uh, the church and church leaders are so focused on discipline and rules and condemnations and you know as i said hot button topics that they forget that that's not what people may need. I mean, obviously the church is a teacher, but the church as consoler, I think, is uh, is really an important role for us. Um, you know, the church is pastor. So yeah, I would I would hope that we would learn from that. But again, I'm 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 always loath to say what the church should do and shouldn't do. You know, one of the things is, is you talk about church as as as, as consoler, church as healer. Uh, these are the models. One of the things as you were saying that came to my mind was was that walk that Pope Francis made, uh, you know, uh, to pray for Rome, uh, mm. that in, in solitude, uh, you know. Uh, sometimes I think, you know, the kind of reforms that that Pope Francis is trying to bring to the church, uh, sometimes it seems as though like he's in a solitude also. Yes. Uh, he's alone. <laughs> yeah, he, he gets attacked too. And I, I'm just always yeah. stunned. I'm, I am always stunned by that because... He's not changed any church teaching. Uh, he's continuing with, uh, you know, with St. John Paul and Pope Emeritus Benedict. And the other thing that strikes me, and I won't get into this too much, but I, I couldn't imagine some of the, the critiques, even from cardinals and bishops, that happened to Francis happening in any way, shape, or form under John Paul or Benedict. It's just stunning to me how much antipathy there is. But, you know, Pope Francis uh, continues to do what he needs to do. And he's also free. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he's a very free man. Uh, and I, 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 I just pray that he continues and that he has the strength to continue. Uh, uh, and I, I think he's, 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 a, he's, a, he's our model in all of this. And that kind of what we in the Jesuits call uh, indifference or detachment. But I think he really understands the the pandemic very well. He has that book, Let Us Dream, where he talks about not going back to things as normal, right? Not going back to the way things were and to really, you know, to, to take stock and to see this as an important um, turning point for humanity. Yeah. Brother James, uh, I asked one hour of you and we have come to an hour almost <laughs> uh, for this of this conversation. Just before we go, uh, before I let you go to do your, do your other things, you know, in your in your book uh, about uh, the Jesuit guide to almost everything, you know, in terms of a spirituality for for real life, you're gonna break down things very simply, you know. Just coming back to to the question, or at least the the theme of the podcast, finding God in all things. What would you say 
to our to our listeners here you know how well, do we would... find god how do we find god in the in the ordinariness of human life sometimes sometimes we, we want to look for god in 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 extraordinary situations yeah. you know we want everything you know <laughs> we want a sacred space we want yeah. a, a a sacred uh, sacred music behind yeah. you right. <laughs> but, right but how do we find god in daily life yeah that's a great question you're right we all do right we all who wouldn't want you know like the transfiguration to make things clear although even at the transfiguration peter james and john they were a little overwhelmed uh you know you're right uh and i think finding out in all things means it's not just in church it's not just in church it's not just when you're reading your scriptures it's not just in the sacraments which are all you know key ways of finding god it's with your children uh, it's with your spouse it's walking out in the street uh it's getting a funny text message from a friend it's 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 having a good meal right uh finding god in all things uh means that every moment is an opportunity to encounter god and i think the key to to your question is is noticing is noticing where god is is paying attention most of prayer and most of the spiritual life is noticing these things but if we if we overlook them uh, if we sort of pass them by if we don't notice we're not attentive we can miss them uh, and so a lot of it's noticing and also being aware and accepting the fact that this is in fact god so it doesn't have to be something as you say with you know religious music and a big sunbeam uh, but it, it could be something very simple. It could be like a little, you know, your, your child or your grandchild smiling at you or laughing or the sound of a child's laugh, right? That's enough, right? If that, if that's, a, if that's a way that you can experience God's grace, uh, that's enough. And so part of it is noticing. So I think that's, I think half of the spiritual life is noticing. Brother James. You know, you have covered a lot of things, you know, and, and you've written about a lot of things, you know, about humor, uh, your reflections on, on ground zero, ways, God in all of this, uh, your experience in, in the refugee camps, uh, your encounter with Christ. I, I remember there's this book about Jesus Christ, A Journey, you know, and that's a very powerful, powerful book. Uh, you know, Thank you. I just want to ask this, this may be my last question, and then I'll let you go uh, to do other things. You know, while writing that book, uh, you know, at the end of it all, um, I don't know whether I'm going to phrase it correctly, but in the sense that what kind of a Jesus did you encounter at the end of it all? Oh, gosh, that's such a great question. <laughs> uh, did you start with a, with, with a, with, with a, a, with a kind of a, a thing and then did you end it differently? It's a great question. Uh, so the book, uh, Jesus of Pilgrimage, uh, is a story of, uh, it's a life of Christ, but it's also the story of a pilgrimage I took through the Holy Land and my own encounters with Jesus. Um, I would say that, um, you know, I know that we all believe Jesus is fully human and fully divine. We say that every Sunday, I believe that. But um, I think my travels to the Holy Land really helped me encounter the human side of Jesus even more. I will say that, um, and I say this in the book, have you been to the Holy Land, Father? Or Yes, twice. Yeah, there you go. So I think you know that there's something extraordinary about, standing where Jesus stood and knowing that he saw the same things that you're seeing. And we can be sure, I always tell the pilgrims, you know, there may be many different places where this miracle or that miracle happened, but there are some places that we know this is the Sea of Galilee, right? There's, there's no other Sea of Galilee. That's this right. is it. He would have seen this. And it grounds Jesus and it grounds him in a particular place in a particular time. 
in a way that just um, really overwhelmed me. Uh, and I, I, so I think the, the humanity of Jesus really came through for me uh, on that trip. And, and that's what I try to communicate in the book. So for example, and I think it's, it's an invitation that the humanity of Jesus is an invitation for us to think about the kinds of things that he would have encountered. So again, you know, to bring it back to the pandemic, that he would have encountered sickness. And I don't mean just the people he healed, right? He obviously healed those, not everyone though. I mean, meaning he didn't hear every, every single person in Judea and in Galilee, but he would have known sickness and he would have known people who were sick in his life. Uh, and and to, to really understand that as that's the person that we're in, in, in a relationship with. So that Jesus is, understands all things, understands us not simply because he's divine and understands everything, right? But because, also because he's human and he experienced all things. So the one who experienced everything is just such a powerful model for me. And I, I'm even getting tongue-tied talking about what it's like to be in the Holy Land. I'm sure your experiences were the same. It's just, it's extraordinary to say he was here. True. I mean, one of the things, I mean, just to conclude, one of the things that I, I kind of experienced Holy Land is that the Bible comes alive. You know, yes. every Sunday or every day when you read the Gospels, they say, hey, I was there. You know, yes. I, I saw this, you know, and, and, you know, it kind of, it becomes very personal in that sense. Uh, quite different from, you know, if I had not been to the Holy Land. Uh, it, it was just, you know, I would just have to imagine how things were. Uh, but then the Bible comes alive, like you said, you know, the well, humanity of Christ. And also you just see where so many of his parables come from. I'll tell you a very quick story uh, on the, in a place called the Bay of Parables, which is most likely where he preached the parable of the, 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 the seed, right? The sower that goes out to sow. And you remember in the parable, it falls on rocky ground, it falls on fertile ground, and it falls among thorn bushes. And in that place, you know, we, we, we can be sure that it's near here, right? The, the Sea of Galilee in that area is very, you know, small, the shoreline. In that place when we were there were rocky ground, fertile ground, and big thorn bushes. And you realize that when he's talking to people about nature and everyday life and the parables, he's, he's, he's picking things right where they were. And it just, it, just, it just makes it come alive in a new way. And you say, aha, now I get it. Or... When you uh, go from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is the, the, the scene of the Good Samaritan, a man went down to Jericho, the Jericho Road, and you see how many twists and turns there are and how hilly it is and, and where robbers would be able to hide, you realize, yeah, okay, this is, this is a dangerous road. This is why this man is beaten. And it just, you get it. You, you say, okay, now I, now I understand it. And things that might not have made sense or might seem a little mysterious or strange once you're there, you say, now I get it. I, I know exactly what he's talking about. So, uh, very true. Father James, we could go on talking. I know I, I need to let you go. You get, you, you need to get your, your weekly reflections uh, out very quickly. Uh, it's been a great pleasure, uh, talking to you, uh, meeting you and I've read about you. And finally, you know, to have this conversation with you, uh, thank you very much for your time, uh, for sharing your, 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 your experience, uh, your wisdom with us, your ministry, your encounter with the Holy Father, and so many other things. I hope you've had a good time talking to us too. And I hopefully we great time. welcome you in Malaysia, in, in the tracks, in the route of your father. I love, that's right, in the footsteps of my father. Uh, I would love to. I just want to thank you, Father Clarence. You're obviously a great priest, and uh, I could talk to you for, for the next couple of hours and would probably love to. Uh, but I just want to say thanks for inviting me on your wonderful podcast. Uh, and please uh, keep me in your prayers, and I will certainly be praying for you.
Thank you very much. And so there we had a conversation. I had a, I had a conversation uh, with Father James Martin, uh, such an interesting conversation uh, with him who's doing so many different things. And he writes a lot about spirituality, uh, about our lives uh, and our encounters with God. Uh, hope you have had a, a, a good, uh, a good, we had a good, you had a good podcast. After talking to him, I'm tongue-tied already uh, to be able to, to share this with you. And, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Same time, Saturday morning, 10.30 a.m. Bye, everyone.